Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Pray with me. God of wisdom, you invite us into patient growth. Fill us with your grace for ourselves and for others as we slowly wake to divine love in us, for us, and truly all around us. Amen. And please be seated. Every year around this time, we take a Sunday to remember the story of the Bible, which is what we're going to do today. In a couple weeks, we'll have a three-week sermon series that intends to remind us about Pearl's rhythms here. And the first sermon in that series will cover our rhythm of sacred story. And so in two weeks, I plan to talk about the idea of cultivating and how cultivation of our sacred story gives us a lens through which we see and appreciate Christian life together. But before getting to that, this morning we'll remember the story of the Bible spanning Genesis to Revelation. The Bible, as we heard in the scripture readings this morning, it begins in Genesis with chaos that is fashioned into a blossoming and flourishing garden. And it concludes in Revelation, where we see that this garden has been cultivated into an entire world at peace. And it's this progression, this progression from garden to world in full bloom that begs the question, how? How is it that this garden is cultivated into a world at peace? Genesis. In the beginning, God and chaos. But as we see in Genesis 1 and 2, the Spirit of God hovers over chaos. God is always hovering over chaos, dreaming and hoping for what that chaos could be cultivated into. And so God spoke a word, and that word, according to the story, fashioned all of this. For according to the story, that word, it fashioned the cosmos. That word, it cut the stars. That word, it swirled the ocean deep. And that word, it sculpted Adam, Hebrew for male, but also for human, also for humankind. The story then tells us that this word reached down into humankind and drew out Eve, woman. And after placing these two humans in a garden, the word spoke. Be fruitful, steward the creation, name the animals. Notice, and and this is very important, the word never declared, be perfect. Nor did the word declare, be filled with all knowledge. Rather, the word spoke, be fruitful, steward the creation, name the creatures. 
And about perfection, about knowledge, this is also really important. The word declared these words. Don't try and eat that fruit of knowledge. In fact, do you see that tree over there called knowledge? If you eat from that tree, you will die. That's all in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And then, of course, there's Genesis chapter 3, a chapter of immense misunderstanding because Adam and Eve did eat from that forbidden tree called knowledge. And about this, many modern Christians read Genesis chapter 3 and they declare original sin or they declare human depravity. And they've been told to believe that every part of themselves in this creation is fallen and broken and in need of rescue due to this very ancient story. But you see, that way of reading the Bible doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The Hebrew Scriptures don't mention original sin. In fact, the Hebrew Scriptures don't even refer much to Adam and Eve outside of these very brief chapters which if you pause to ponder that, it's pretty astonishing that these two characters aren't really referred to outside of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 if they've cataclysmically changed everything for worse. Besides this, Jesus doesn't refer to original sin, nor does the New Testament. And if we want to get somewhat historical, the father of our 16th century Reformation, Martin Luther himself, declares in his commentary on Genesis, God didn't actually walk in a garden. That's problematic. And going further, the great second century apologist Theophilus of Antioch explains this about Genesis chapter 3. There was nothing in the fruit other than knowledge. And Adam, being yet an infant in age, was on this account as yet unable to receive that knowledge worthily. In a similar line of thought, third century church father Irenaeus agreed, writing, For as it is certainly in the power of a mother to give strong food to her infant, the child is not yet able to receive more substantial nourishment. So also it was possible for God himself to have made man perfect from the first, but man could not receive this, being as yet an infant. I tell you these things because it wasn't until the fourth century that Augustine coined the language of original sin. Prior to that, some of our earliest Christian writers read Genesis 3 differently, which is to say, rather than cataclysmic depravity for eating from a tree called knowledge, earlier writings explain Adam and Eve as being young humans who could not assume perfect knowledge simply by eating fruit from a tree. Now, don't get me wrong. We humans do have a propensity to be perfect now, right? Like Adam and Eve, we want to take that class and get it now. We want to affirm that idea in our head and get it all perfectly now. We want to read that book and grow up perfectly now. And and suddenly, poof, we are all perfectly knowledgeable human beings. I mean, we all want to eat from that tree of knowledge. But as our sacred story reveals, there's no magic fruit that perfects our lives. In fact, what our story seems to declare is that the expectation of instantaneous perfection results in our experiences of shame and guilt. And so, unable to achieve instantaneous perfection, and filled with shame and guilt, Adam and Eve hide in trees and cover themselves with leaves, thinking we are in no condition for God to see us as we are. 
God then removes the very human temptation of instantaneous perfection, placing Adam and Eve east of Eden, where they are set down in this world in order to live out their precious lives. And the question, how? How do we humans progress from garden to world in full bloom? How is the garden cultivated into a world at peace? Well, if Genesis chapters 1 to 3 have taught us anything, a very likely answer is not immediately. Not quickly. And I hope that fills you with some peace. Like, it's hard work to be a human being. If you've had a child grow up, you see how much work it is. And if you've seen humans who tend to get stuck developmentally, you realize how hard it is for humans to continue on this journey of ever-increasing knowledge and wisdom. It takes time. Growing good takes time. In the following eight chapters, Genesis 4 to 11, we're given a window into humankind's infancy. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel, rivalry. Chapters 5 to 8, Noah and the ark, an overwhelming creation that we cannot control. Chapters 9 to 11, Tower of Babel, technological advancement resulting in human estrangement. These are very ancient stories, but very relevant stories, wouldn't you say? Any estrangement today? any overwhelming creation today, any technological advancement resulting in human estrangement today, it's all around us. Beginning in Genesis chapter 12, the story descends from from a 10,000-foot view of humankind to a particular people and to a particular story. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls to a man named Abram and says to him, hey, if you go to this land that I tell you to go to, I'm going to make you into a great people. I'm going to bless you, and you're going to become a blessing to everyone on this earth. Well, Abram and his wife Sarai, they, they listen, they trust, they rest into this knowing inside of themselves, and they go. They have Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah have Esau and Jacob. Jacob, through a very interesting uh, scenario, steals the blessing from his older brother for himself and receives the blessing of God that passes to him from his father and from his grandfather. Jacob then has two wives and two concubines and 12 children, and those 12 children, those 12 sons, become 12 tribes, and those 12 tribes become the nation of Israel. And at the end of Genesis, there's a famine in the land to which Abraham took and built his family. And because of this famine, they go to Egypt to find food. That's the end of Genesis. 400 years pass by. We find ourselves in the book of Exodus. How is the garden cultivated into a world at peace? Well, Israel has become enslaved in Egypt and they cry out to God for deliverance. And God always hears those who cry out for deliverance. God raises up Moses. Moses performs all of these signs and wonders. The last of which they are departing from Egypt. The the Red Sea splits open. They walk through it into the wilderness and on their way to the land of promise. In Exodus chapter 19, they end up at the foot of a mountain and God calls Moses up and Moses goes up and God says to Moses, hey, get everybody ready because tomorrow when the ram's horn blows, I want all of Israel to come up onto this mountain and I'm going to make your entire nation into a kingdom of priests. Priests that mediate my goodness in this world. Well, the ram's horn blows in Israel rather than going up, they fall down on their knees and they say, we don't want to go up onto that mountain. You go. So Moses goes up. 
He receives the law and the commandments. He comes down. He gives them to Israel. Israel says, we will obey. God then commands them to build this tent of meeting, which is like a little tabernacle that they carry with them throughout the wilderness on their way to the land of promise. And when they set up camp, around camp, in the center of the camp is this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, in which the very presence of God was said to dwell. And so you could see this light in the world working its way to the land of promise. Leviticus. How do a people enslaved for 400 years in Egypt learn new life rhythms and patterns? Answer, give them forms to make the divine ideal concrete in human life. Here's a ceremony for giving thanks. Oh, it's good to give thanks. Here's a ceremony for paying back debt. Oh, it's good to be freed from debt. Here's a ritual to receive forgiveness. It's good to be forgiving and to be forgiven. The list of ceremonies and rituals go on throughout Leviticus, but, but here's the thing. There's no perfect ceremony or ritual or law. Uh, these are just human ways of making divine ideals more concrete in this world. In fact, ceremonies and rituals that become too important have a way of making us less like human beings and more like human doings. Doing, doing, doing. Trying to get it all and to do it all right. But that's not how the garden grows into a world at peace. Numbers. Israel gets to the edge of the land of promise. They send in spies to see what the land is like. They spend 40 days in the land of promise, and they come back and they say, hey, this land is good. It flows with milk and honey. Oh, but the people there are huge. We cannot go. Moses says, we must go. The spies say, we cannot go. And God says, fine, for every day that you were spying in the land, you will now wander one year for each day. So Israel wanders around in numbers for 40 years. Perhaps the line from garden to world at peace isn't as straight as we'd like it to be sometimes. How was the garden cultivated into a world at peace? Well, Joshua and Judges are all about violence. All about violence. Israel, like every ancient people, believed that God told them to go into the land and to annihilate the people in the name of their own God. And so they did. They went in and they just started annihilating the people. And taking up the land, we move from Joshua into Judges. Now in Judges, there's this cycle. The cycle goes like this. Israel sins. They experience some consequences. They're oppressed by a foreign oppressor. They cry out for help. God raises up a judge. And through violence, that judge brings about peace. And that cycle just spins again and again and again in the book of Judges. But if you're reading carefully, you notice that that cycle actually spins downward. Downward, downward, downward. For the peace that is brought about by the judge becomes more and more and more horrific and violent. And the point is really very clear. There's no such thing as redemptive violence. Violence just leads to violence. Walls just lead to bigger walls. Wars just lead to bigger wars. Bombs just lead to bigger bombs. Violence does not bring about peace. How is the garden cultivated into a world of peace? The book of Samuel. Israel approaches their prophet Samuel, and they say, hey, Samuel, we love that God is our king, but we'd really like a king like all of the other nations. Samuel says, no, God's your king. God says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, give them a king. And so they get a tall, handsome, strong-looking king named Saul. But Saul's not a very good king. Eventually, the next king is David, and we're told that David's heart is after God. But even David is a fallible figure, right? Makes some pretty significant mistakes. 
adultery, murder, covers it all up for a while before finally getting it all out and confessing his sin before God. Well, eventually David dies and we move into the book of Kings and David's son Solomon becomes king and he's supposed to be the wisest king of all of the kings. In fact, the kingdom of Solomon is one full of splendor built on the back of slaves. We see the irony here in the story, don't we? Solomon then dies. His son Rehoboam becomes king. All of Israel comes to Rehoboam and they say, Rehoboam, we loved your dad, but he was hard. Lighten our load and we'll serve you forever. Rehoboam says, Let me think about it. He goes and he talks to his dad's advisors. They say, do it. Do exactly what they say. Say you'll lighten their load and actually lighten their load and they will revere you and love you and follow you. And Rehoboam says, thank you. Let me go talk to my friends. Anyone have teenagers? (laughs) So then he he goes to his friends and he says, friends, this is what Israel says. This is what my dad's advisors say. What do you say? And they say, oh, Rehoboam, now's not the time to become weak. You need to let them know that you are going to take charge. You are going to be stronger than your father. So he calls Israel back. Israel all comes before him and he says, my dad was hard. You're right. I'm going to be harder. I'm going to sting you like scorpions. Surprisingly, that didn't go over very well. (laughs) Israel cries out, to your tents, O Israel. And in the book of Kings, this kingdom that's supposed to be of priests who mediate God's goodness in the world fractures into two. We've got the northern kingdom, which goes with this guy named Jeroboam. I know Jeroboam and Rehoboam, very familiar, similar. Jeroboam takes the northern kingdom, sometimes called Israel, sometimes called Samaria. Rehoboam takes the southern kingdom, sometimes called Judah, sometimes called Jerusalem. And from this point on in the book of Kings, we have king after king after king after king, and they just get worse and worse and worse and worse. Finally, Assyria becomes a powerhouse, crushes the northern kingdom. Babylon then comes and crushes Assyria and crushes the southern kingdom of Judah. Finally, Persia comes along and crushes Babylon. And King Cyrus says to Israel, who's been living in exile under all of these empires, let a man go up and build your God a temple in the land of promise. And this is how the Hebrew scriptures come to an end. And remember that all-important question, how is the garden cultivated into a world at peace? Well, if we've been reading carefully, we know for certain that believing the right things or obeying the right things or behaving in the right ways or using violence or hoping for some kind of glorious and the leader who can perfect everything these things don't actually make everything perfect. I mean, don't get me wrong, these are human advancements. Perhaps we could even say progress, but as we're seeing, humans' development toward perfection is never immediate. It's step by slow step, by painful step, by clawing human steps forward. Similar to that tree called knowledge, this whole humans and world at peace thing isn't immediate. It takes time. Time. Which is something the Apostle Paul picks up on from Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born of a woman under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, also an heir through God. Now these are really interesting ideas. A son of God who will free people from religious law. 
a declaration of human beings as all being children of the divine. The notion that God's spirit resides inside of human hearts, actually inside of human hearts, crying out to the divine, Abba, Father. Perhaps human hearts, human lives, human consciousness is ready for something new by the time we get to this testament we call new. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, remember that word in the beginning? And these four books called gospel? Well, gospel literally means good news. And so let us ask, what is good news? What is good news for Christian people? Well, Jesus is very clear about it in Luke chapter 4. He walks into a synagogue, takes the scroll of Isaiah, and declares good news to the poor, which he defines as release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, the oppressed go free, and the declaration of God's favor on everyone and everything. According to Jesus, that is good news. And I would say that's pretty good, isn't it? Jesus then rolls up the scroll, gives it back to his attendant, and sits down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue are fixed on him. He then says to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, and we're told that everyone spoke well of him, and they were amazed at his gracious words. Gracious words from the lips of Jesus. I wonder if trust in gracious words could help cultivate a garden into a world at peace. Like if if graciousness could be good enough to help move the whole thing forward. During another sermon near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he goes up onto a mountain and offers not ten commandments like Moses, but, but nine blessings. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the mourning, blessed are the meek, blessed are the hungry and thirsty, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure, blessed are the peacemakers, the persecuted, blessed are the insulted. And in this sermon, Jesus isn't simply redirecting our effort from one kind of obedience to another kind of obedience. He's absolutely transfixing what law is being declared. And in Jesus' law, he's casting a vision that makes space for all kinds of people and experiences. You see, according to this sermon, all people, especially those who suffer, especially the least, the different, the marginalized, those are especially included in this kingdom of God that Jesus is speaking about. And it makes me wonder if this perspective that makes room for all kinds of people and experiences instead of creeds and obedience to a law could help bring an end to the estrangement and help bring about this garden of peace. Matthew makes it clear that Jesus is a king, but he's a radically different king from, say, Solomon. No palace, no temple, no wealth, no military, no slaves. He simply invites, follow me. And he talked about a kingdom called heaven which we want to make all about getting up there because this here is so broken. But, but Jesus seems to say that it's actually all, all here. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, he says. It's like treasure. It's like a pearl. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that grows into a tree on this earth that gives rest to all of the birds in the world. What an incredible kingdom to give rest to so many different kinds of birds. You see, it is a kingdom near, a kingdom at hand that Jesus says belongs especially to the least. The children, the unclean, the irreligious, the broken, the poor, the sick. 
And in a very short period of time, hundreds, thousands of people begin to follow Jesus. In fact, as he enters into Jerusalem for the last time, as Passover draws near, crowds form. They waved palm branches and they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. It's like they recognized something revolutionary about this person. I wonder if this radical king and his heavenly kingdom could help to cultivate a garden into a world at peace. And then it was Passover. Passover refers to Moses fleeing, uh, freeing Israel from bondage in Egypt. During the first Passover, Israel slaughtered lambs, placed lambs' blood on their doorsteps, and they ate a meal in haste, we're told, expecting liberation. At night, death passed over Israel, but took the life of every firstborn Egyptian, and Pharaoh commanded Israel to leave Egypt. And once a year, from that day forward, Israel celebrated Passover as a feast. And so it's very interesting that at the near, at the, uh, that near the end of the Gospels, at the climactic moment of each of their storytelling, we find ourselves at Passover. And Jesus is sitting around a table sharing a meal consisting of bread and wine with his followers. While doing this, he declared that the bread was his broken body and that the wine was his shed blood. He then said, take, eat, take, drink, do this in remembrance of me. Do what? Well, Jesus is arrested and his disciples want to fight, but Jesus says no, and so they all flee. His robe is torn. A thorn of crowns is placed on his head. He's mocked and beaten. He's then pinned to a cross, but I like how the book of Acts refers to it. Acts writes, he's pinned to a tree. Isn't that perfect? Do you remember that tree called knowledge? Well, here's Jesus, the Son of God, King of kings, and Word made flesh, pinned to a tree on Passover. Not killing, but being killed. Not cursing, but declaring forgiveness. Dripping divine fruit and offering a different kind of knowledge about life and God and love. Which you can't, like Adam and Eve, have now, take now, seize now. No, of course not. Knowledge about life and God, which is to say love. Knowledge for humans about love, it takes humanity millennia to grow up into. Knowledge about life and God and love take humans, each of us individual humans, lifetimes to grow up into. And no one, no one ever gets it perfect. In fact, to assume perfect knowledge now, right now, by any religion or denomination or church or country or person is just the same old Genesis 3 story that results in the chaos that is human shame and guilt. You see, this way of Jesus was a shift forward in human consciousness and human development. It's a new way of understanding everything. Despite our slow progression to see and to understand, which is the only way to grow up as humans, divinity is present. Divinity is forgiving. Divinity is healing and feeding and including. Divinity is breaking and bleeding and inviting every person. Follow me in this way of life. I wonder if being crushed by power and violence as opposed to increasing the power and violence could help bring an end to the estrangement and cultivate a garden into a world at peace. Well, after three days in a tomb, Jesus, who was killed by those who think that they have eaten all of the fruit of knowledge, only to wreak more chaos in the world, this Jesus is raised to life. 
And when the divinities are raised to life after being killed, the story usually goes, and they crushed everyone. (laughs) But in this story, Jesus rises from the dead and speaks the same words over and over and over again. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. He then tells his followers to go out into the world and to make students of this way of being, kind of like priests who mediate peace. Jesus then ascends to the right hand of the Father, which means that Jesus' way of being is eternal and authoritative. Acts. The spirit of Jesus is let loose into this world, which is another advancement. It's like another click forward. Because in Acts, we're told that humans become the temple of the divine. Together, we humans are a temple of the divine. And this world, well, according to Acts, it is not absent of, but awash in the divine who is in and through everything. Jesus' students then begin to embody and proclaim Jesus' radical message, good news, blessing, especially on the outcasts. A divine king has inaugurated a heavenly kingdom by undoing the way of violence through self-giving. Peace be upon you. You're invited to join with us in this revolution. And the message in Acts spreads, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of earth. Revelation. The estrangement between humans and God has come to its end. The estrangement between family members has come to its end. The estrangement between humans and creation has come to its end. The estrangement between all the people of the world has come to its end. For finally, at last, the entire world is at peace because it has fully awakened to, trusted in, maybe we could say been integrated by love. You see, it is you, your soul, your relationships, this world, which is in full bloom, which is what the Bible refers to as eternal life. It is an era, a new dispensation, a new eon of life here and now, breaking in even today, calling us forward, click by click, step by step, stage by developmental stage, until we see that all are loved and accepted and belong to God. May it be so. May we patiently live into this very human story. May we be patient with ourselves. May we be patient with other people patient with other political colors, patient with other countries, patient with how slow it is for this whole thing to move forward. And perhaps maybe even find ourselves a little more grateful. For despite all that is wrong with today's world, we can just look back at our scriptures and even our own history and say that we've come pretty far, pretty far as humankind. Of course, yes, I know we've still far to go, so far to go. There's much good to be done, much justice needed, much equity uh, deeply needed in our world. And so Jesus' spirit continues to invite, follow me, which is what we're trying to do here at Pearl. Follow Jesus into nonviolent redemption. Follow Jesus into ongoing self-giving. Follow Jesus into becoming one and all incarnations of divine love. For you, humankind, are my temple, and I am casting out every darkness until all that remains is light. From Revelation chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, 
flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship them. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And let us pray. God of light, you invite us into patient growth. Fill us with your grace for ourselves and for those around us as we slowly wake to divine love in us and for us and all around us. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Thank you.